0: So the Bible tells us to everything there is a season, and I think my season in the Senate is about to come to an end, but the new season before me makes this moment far less the closing of one chapter than the opening of another. And we all take pride in the past, but we all live for the future. And I agree with the prairie poet, Carl Sandburg, who told us, yesterday as a wind gone down, a sun dropped in the west. I tell you that there's nothing in the world, only an ocean of tomorrows, a sky of tomorrows. And like everybody here, I'm an optimist. I believe our best tomorrows are yet to be lived. So again, thank you. God bless America. And God bless the United States Senate.
1: Republicans seek to take
2: control of the House of Representatives.
0: Republicans are going to retake both the House and Senate.
2: A liberal MSNBC hosts warning Democrats about the potential for a red wave.
3: Do we have any sort of canary in the coal mine type indications of where we may be headed on that front?
0: Fox
4: News is calling the Virginia governor's race for Republican Glenn Youngkin.
0: You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve...
2: Well, hello and welcome to the Ruthless Variety program. That, of course, was the incomparable Senator Bob Dole who passed over the weekend. We were fortunate enough to speak with him in his final interview here on Ruthless. Um, what a gentleman, fellas. An incredible man who
5: lived an incredible life. Sort of like, I don't know how, um, <clears throat> how you don't listen to Bob Dole and long to have more politicians like him you know a, a a guy and look, I mean, you know, I'm a real agony of defeat person, yeah, you know, and a negative person and a, an angry person we know this about me <laughs>
2: yeah well established
5: uh Bob Dole was the sort of guy who could overcome incredible adversity in his life and do it with a smile on his face yeah and there's just not a lot of people who could do that at the level that he did it, yeah. You know, like it, it takes a remarkable amount of grace,
2: better man than I. Well, I think it's beyond politicians from my standpoint. I think the biggest loss that we have with the loss of of somebody like Senator Bob Dole is the loss of another person walking the planet that has the, the sort of makeup that he does Mm -hmm. and the, and the priorities that he did and how he operated and how he was basically a selfless human being in many, many ways. And, uh. God bless him, you know? I mean, look, we we had the opportunity, as I said, to go and talk with him in his final days. And you could tell he wasn't doing well. But every single question that we asked, and and Ashbrook was here with me for this, everything that I asked him, um, you could see a twinkle in his eye and light up. Yeah. Right? And he wasn't always able to give me everything that he thought. Right. Um, But you knew he was there. And he knew he wanted to. And I think what we got was an incredible amount of, of lessons for, for future politicians, for people who are interested in politics, just life lessons, basically.
5: Mm-hmm. You yeah. Know. I, like, I loved his line. And, and if you haven't listened to that interview, I highly recommend going back and listening to it. We, we released it over the weekend after the news came out. He had this great line. I, I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong what he said exactly but basically he was like look you know if you can't laugh at yourself yeah you know you have no business laughing at anybody else yeah which i thought was such a good statement to make
6: you, you know, know duncan he said that in the part of the interview where he was talking about norm mcdonald yep. yeah and you know right before he said that he he said we lost a very good person and i think what a lot of people don't know is right after right after he Came up second in the presidential election in nineteen ninety six. He was on Saturday Night Live with the guy who satired him. And they had one of the funniest bits that anybody has ever seen. And I just think that one of the one of the most special things about the guy was not just his willpower, not just his kindness, but also his humor. And it, it's it's a very it injected a very sort of unique um, aspect to politics we just do not get enough of today, and we need more of in this country.
2: Do we have any audio of that? Because I'd be, I would love to to hear a little bit of it if we have
6: some. Yeah, let me hit play on that right now.
0: Come November fifth, a lot of people are going to be surprised by Bob Dole because Bob Dole is going to win this election. Doesn't sound a thing like me. First of all, <laughs> I don't run around saying Bob Dole does this and Bob Dole does that. That's not something Bob Dole does. <laughs> I Man,
2: guys, God, he's just so good. Just
5: self-deprecating humor, you know. I mean, like you, you come up short. You know, most people would just want to crawl in a hole and die.
2: Totally, and it's right,
1: a, it's a crushing thing. Like I, I constantly tell folks, if you have not, you must read "What It Takes" by Richard Ben Kramer. It's an incredible book about the 1988 presidential primary and the election, and. I mean, it's, uh, you know, running for president is a tough, tough process. And it used to be a lot different than it is now. Um, And learning the, like, history of Bob Dole um, from his, from coming from nothing in Kansas. uh, World War II, he was injured just in a horrific way. Doesn't let any of this hold him back. Like, that's the one thing. Like, uh, you know, it's that Kansas grit. Like, unstoppable, you know, force of will. Um, but at the same time, he can, he can, he can take a joke. You right. Know? Yeah. It, it's, it's just funny. You know,
2: there was one smash. We were looking back at uh, all the various tributes that people had done to him. You know, some good, some, you know, I think probably didn't capture him fully, but there was one back from the eighties that caught our eye that I think that was highlighted in punch bowl today by, by Jake and Anna about their former colleague, David Rogers, who used to work for years and years as a correspondent, and he wrote an incredible, I mean, really incredible lead about Bob Toll. Do you have that?
6: Yeah, I've got it right here. I mean, Rogers, David Rogers, as Josh mentioned, he's a legend in his own right, and he wrote this in 1988, Dateline, Russell, Kansas. So he went there, and he writes... Like the outcroppings of bleached stone in the prairie grass, there is a hardness to this land, and it shows in Russell's native son, Senate Majority Leader Robert Dole. In the evening dusk in his old backyard, the Kansas Republican can still find the weathered metal hook he used to exercise his wounded right arm after World War II. Returning to address his former high school, he seems to speak of his own powerful ambition to chase the flat horizon and grasp the dreams that lie beyond.
2: That's just so good, man. That's like poetry. It's just, it's so good. And it just explains him so perfectly. He was just so salt of the earth, classic Midwestern, uh, limitless in his own ambition, but also the ambition of what he could accomplish and what his country could accomplish. And so, listen, well, I think we're just super honored to have spent some time with him. And been able to do a ruthless with him because uh he wanted to the 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 truth is you know we were concerned about whether or not we were invading his privacy here towards the end of his life and we didn't want to put him out or um you know make him uncomfortable with anything but he was absolutely (laughs) i mean he insisted upon it right smash
6: yeah, oh, he he insisted on it. He he wanted us there. He wanted to show that his mind was still there. And I mean to be honest with you, we we talked about this on the special episode, but his mind was moving faster than his body could yeah. keep up. Yeah. And I mean, he had so much he wanted to say. He was so funny. He was so personable and um and he was just laying it down for everybody right until the very last breath. And can, can I can I read one more line? Uh, From this David Rogers piece, you know, um, Dole quoted uh, Sandberg in that opener audio and, you know, Rogers in his own way is 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 an American Carl Sandberg. But I think Bob Dole is, too. Let me let me just read you this quote that he gave to these high school kids in Kansas. Quote, you come from a very special place, he tells the graduating class in the crowded gym, quote, the horizon is out there somewhere, and you just need to keep chasing it, looking for it, working for it, to make your mark not only on Kansas, but America. And Bob Dole did every last bit of that.
2: Oh, man, it's so great. That's so great. Anyway, you're going to see a lot of tributes this week on, you know, hopefully every cable news program. And just think about that. And 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 go back and listen if you haven't to the interview that we did with him is parting words, which I think were incredibly motivating. I'm just like, you know, incredibly, um, privileged to have been a part of it.
1: Yeah. We we're so lucky to, uh, we got that. Um, one, uh, thing I also wanted to, uh, mention is there was another, uh, famous world war two veteran who recently passed away. It was the last officer in easy company. Folks might remember from saw that. HBO's oh, band yeah, of brothers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Edward Shames, and and one story I heard about him that is, like, the most epic, legendary thing possible is uh, folks who who saw this HBO series, Band of Brothers, might remember, you know, near the end, uh, Easy Company reached Hitler's, like, Eagle's Nest bunker, like, out in the mountains, Um, and one of the things he had in that, like, you know, castle fortress that, that Hitler had built, he had his personal, like, liquor collection of, like, some of the finest liquors. And, uh, Edward goes into that, like, uh, storage area with all the liquors and grabs two of the, like, there was like a seal on these things. That's like the furs, like personal favorite cognacs, right? He grabs a couple bottles of those. And the first one he cracks was at his son's bar mitzvah. No, <laughs> really? Just
6: legendary. Oh, that's, that's awesome. an amazing story. It's good trolling. I that's like how, that. That's how you do it. Yeah.
1: That
2: is, that's awesome. Well, anyway, we got a good program today. Thanks for, um for sharing our, your dole sentiments with us. We really appreciate it, but we have a couple of good interviews today. I think, uh, first off Duncan, you had, you spent some time with Brent Winterbull.
5: Yeah. You know, I mean, he's got a radio show, um, and you know, he's producer for Rush for, you know, 10 years, really interesting perspective on, you know, conservative media and what's What's changed in radio, conservative radio, since he got started, and where we are today? I, th- I think people will enjoy it.
2: Oh, it's great. So, Brett, Brett's with us. We also have David Drucker, who recently wrote a book, a Trump book, and it's um, very forward-looking at what like the Republican Party is like post-Trump and how that all gets put together.
5: Yeah, it's it's Media Day here on Ruth. Yeah, how which, about that? Which you know, I, I I think December is a good time to. To do this sort of thing, to agree, where you sort of just take take stock of where we are in politics and media, and say, you know, where do we go from here? Um, you know, I mean, there's less
2: going on in the day to day, and so you know, why not do it? Yep, no, nope. completely agree.
1: Good stuff. Let's read read a couple of five stars. Smug, you want to tackle the first one? Sure. This is uh, from Andrew HJ84. And it says, push the podcast button. It says, nothing makes me look forward to Tuesday like a new Ruthless episode dropping. Also, Sherry Jacobus' reign as King of the Hill champ will be looked back on like the steroid era is in baseball. <laughs> Unfair. <laughs> Incredible. I, 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 I got a
5: couple negative comments about about that King of the Hill. You always do. That's the, the price of it's being a of judge it. and jury. You know, I appreciate it?
2: it. Yeah. So this is from NATCA Frank. Uh, It's entitled, Read This. When (laughs) Smug's COVID test came back negative, I almost gave the program one star. (laughs) Not because I wanted the internet's most celebrated troll, I mean that as a compliment, to suffer from the illness... But because the Minions were denied what would have undoubtedly been an epic comedic audio of Holmes and Duncan reacting to their in-studio exposure. <laughs> Let's talk about that in a second. The old-time radio uh, Ashbrook voice could have provided legendary play-by-play of their terror and Smug's reveling in his complete domination of his co-hosts.
5: <laughs> no, it's great. You know what's not said in this review is what my wife's reaction would have been.
2: Well, we so we talked about this. <laughs> we talked about this before we actually taped it, and and we were like, "Listen, um, let's take the risk." But uh, if it comes back negative, what are we going to do here? Well, like- uh, so, so
5: so I mean, Smug was very confident. He was, in fact, oh, negative. Yes. Yeah. So I felt I felt pretty good about it based on that 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 alone. But yeah, I mean when when uh Ashbrook put the solution in and then sort of looked up. Yeah, no, it scared me. Like he me. like he was getting an immediate positive. Yeah, it scared me. And if you go back and you listen to that episode, Holmes like sort of jumps in, it's like do we do we have news to break here? Yeah. I was very
2: worried in that moment. Well I pushed back from the table I attached. <laughs> That would have been legendary. He's right. We all would have been in uh, we would have been in a bad place. We risked it for the you, content. We risked not, it
6: for the content. Not long after the episode posted, my own mother texted me. Just asked and you. She what you was were like, doing. "What? You're a COVID expert now?" <laughs> <laughs> she said, "I hope he didn't have it." <laughs>
2: we got one more
6: here for you, Duncan.
5: Yeah, yeah. Final one here from Farmer Matthew. Title is Iowa Farmer Minions. As a farmer, I'm often listening to the program while hauling grain to market. It's probably not ideal to be laughing so hard I'm crying while listening (laughs) to King of the Hill and operating 80,000 pounds of Big rig. Wow! but I'm willing to take the risk. I never thought any show slash person slash podcast could begin to fill the void created when Rush left us, but Ruthless is the perfect blend of vegetables and candy to do just that. When the guys get going, their laughter is so infectious, and makes it all that funnier. And Smug's 1950s farmhand take on dogs <laughs> is absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah. Cheers, fellas!
2: I love that. What,
5: that's a, what that's an like incredible my favorite review, that's dude! Incredible. An incredible compliment. I mean, you know, we 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 come around DC, you know, over to the Hill a lot, and we talk to a lot of people in this town and listen to the podcast. And God bless you for doing it. But like when I hear that there's a guy hauling eighty thousand pounds on his big rig mm-hmm. to market. It, oh, it's, so it. uh, <laughs> it's so it fulfilling it's so fulfilling to know we're making his drive
2: i know it. i know it. Well, we'll keep on trying pal and uh we got some good stuff for you today here's what i want to start with i don't know if you guys saw this but like a personal uh, a guy who just drives me absolutely up the wall this guy dana milbank yes holy cats i mean he's the absolute worst he's, he's a columnist for the washington post He's, a, he's a, a bona fide idiot. I mean, this is...
1: Yeah, that's, that's Good nice.
2: soundboard. It's, it's Good a soundboard. Nice soundboard for him. This guy's one of the dumber human beings you'll ever run across. Yeah, uh, But, of course, he's got a, a media job with the uh, Washington Post. He's had one for years. And he wrote something over the weekend that said, the media treats Biden as badly, hyphen, or worse than Trump. Here's the proof. Proof. He's got proof. So this dude goes about writing an entire column based on this nonsense, nonsense analytics about how the media is actually more negative towards President Biden than they were President Trump. Yeah, it's just
6: nonsense.
5: I mean, what
1: a what an insane take.
5: Well, it's it's based on sentiment analysis. And and any person who's worth their salt in in digital media will tell you that sentiment analysis is akin to basically reading the entrails.
6: Yeah. Uh, you know, of an animal. Listen, anybody None of this a, is fucking real, Michael. Anybody who's worth their salt in media basic media consumption right. will tell you that Dana Milbank expressing an opinion on media bias is worth even less than
2: that. the entrails themselves.
6: Yeah. Yeah, no, this, I think this, that's
2: probably right. Well, this asshole writes this column and immediately is condemned from the most unlikely of sources. There a are a lot of sources. There are professors. There Nate Silver, five thirty eight, who yeah. of course does all the analytics or whatever. Everybody was like, "Yeah, yeah," no, what he used was complete horseshit. Yeah,
5: no, it was complete horseshit. And I also saw Lizza Ryan Lizza from Politico, go, you know, basically fighting back against Milbank on this stuff. And I think what was really fascinating. in in looking at the graph, this was the proof, right? This was the proof that Dana Milbank was, 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 uh, showing to say that, you know, Biden's treated worse than Donald Trump in the graph. He's treated better than Donald Trump, like (laughs) throughout, throughout the entire thing with the exception being the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, when, when people were, were falling from airplanes and Marines were getting murdered by terrorists because of the hasty withdrawal, What Milbank is suggesting is that somehow the real victim in all of this was Joe Biden. Biden. Yeah,
1: not the Marines who were murdered. Not the people falling from airplanes. Not the people falling from airplanes. Not the people, the kids that Biden dropped a bomb on. Yeah. No, it's Biden was the victim. Unbelievable. Well, what
5: they do do is they take this 30,000 foot view that there is this war that's happening between truth and authoritarianism, right? Like between democracy and fascism. Right, like that's what they want you to actually believe, and and what Dana says is that that you know there's one political party that's engaged in deception, that's the Republican Party, uh, and there's one party that's engaged in truth, that's the Democratic Party. Dana Milbank said that uh, Mitch McConnell, because he wasn't going to pass HR one, HR one, which still has not passed now in a Democratic majority, but back in in 2020, um. Dana Milbank wrote a column saying that Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset,
2: a Russian asset, Russian asset back when that was a thing.
6: That was a thing. And this is the neutral arbiter that's telling us what media is and isn't doing.
5: Yeah. Right. right, What's fair and what's unfair. And he said that Mitch McConnell is a Russian asset and that he's going to allow Vladimir Putin to steal, steal the 2020 election.
1: I mean, for Donald Trump, I I think that was
6: that what I'm saying is, was that deception? That was, a, was, I, I'm not sure he's wrong. Did Putin win the, the 2020 <laughs> election? Well, he's getting the Nord Stream 2 <laughs> pipeline. Wow.
2: Putin may damn. have won. He may have won. Not the way that Dana thought. Right. Not the way that Dana thought. But he thought.
6: helped him wow. nonetheless. Yeah. Oh. So Milbank is the Russian asset.
1: <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts that someone would consider they can even put this take out there. After just the Russia thing, four years of, of which... Everyone who's sane at the time knew was the stupidest conspiracy theory that Trump's like some kind of a KGB. Right. That Manchurian candidate. Yeah. Everyone who had half a brain knew this is bullshit. But for four years, mainstream media is pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And it's only recently that now they're like, oh, actually, you know, turns out the Steele dossier was a bunch of bullshit. All these people are being paid off. This was damn dark money groups who are paying for some of this shit to be done. And you remember,
2: Smug, Smug, this is worth revisiting, right? Because the crux of Dana Milbank's argument was this bullshit that was perpetrated, I think, by Brennan. I can't prove it, but I think so. In all of the media publications about how everyone in the American government knew that the Russians were manipulating the election. And so they went, remember, they went to Paul Ryan and they went to Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell decided he wasn't going to send a letter. Oh no! He wasn't going to send a letter condemning the Trump campaign. He
5: didn't file the right TPS report. Yeah, right before that right. would have saved democracy.
2: Right, but 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 the whole <laughs> point was Just fucking absurd. It was this assumption that he used at the time that there was this flawless intelligence. Right. That everyone knew that the Russia and, and it was colluding with the Trump campaign. Uh-huh. And, and, and like <clears throat> McConnell, evidently, by their own reporting, was the only one that was like, I'm not sure about that. And they used that, that piece, then to try to, to illustrate that all Republicans were in concert with Trump and Putin mm-hmm. to try to disenfranchise all voters in the United it's States. Not, it was like just
6: complete bullshit. And what it did was expose the entire Washington Post to weeks of criticism. For running these inserts that were paid for lock, stock, and barrel by the Russian government. By the government. And by the government of China. In China. The Chinese Communist Party was paying for like a section. Like you would would flip through your Washington Post in the morning. You'd read the metro, there's the sports. Oh, there's the China watch. Right. Oh, China <laughs> watch the paid, Russia watch. Right. Paid
5: hmm. for by the government of these countries. Looks And, like, and these guys, Dana Milbank's going to talk about foreign interference in our elections and talk about disinformation. And he worked for the publication that was literally exactly, putting inserts exactly, in where exactly. readers wouldn't have any idea that this was funded by foreign governments. Exactly. And he's going to sit there now and say, you know what? Uh, the, Biden's treated worse than Donald Trump, the guy I said who was a Manchurian candidate. Man, what a gar- garbage human being. Garbage human being. He's an embarrassment. And people who, who work in this town in media will say he himself is the greatest embarrassment to the Washington press corps. Without a doubt. <laughs> yeah. this, isn't, this isn't conjecture. To a person, yeah, they will say that. he is the biggest
2: joke in this town. The fact that that guy has a job is incredible.
6: Well, I'll, can I just take the, the devil's advocate? I think, to be honest with you, there's probably a lot of reporters that are emailing him and saying, oh, you're saying what I wish I could say. <laughs> oh, I think that's right. That is embarrassing. Well,
2: speaking of some who, who would have done that, I think it's about time that Ruthless takes a victory lap for our friend Chris Cuomo. <laughs> yes. On CNN. Yes.
5: Another yeah, we, scalp. I mean, this,
1: this is just... Everyone who had who had been following Cuomo's career, it's wh- what shocks me is apparently there's there's uh, sexual improprietary, impropriety you know allegations that will be coming out. But how is this guy not fired for being a bad journalist from his like journalism job? It's
5: so, it's sort of the ultimate tell, right? Smug. It's the ultimate tell that uh, you know journalists in this town and you know on cable news didn't attack, you know, Chris Cuomo for violating every ethical standard of journalism that they would believe in, that they went to school to protect. Yeah. That they think professionally they, claim, they, they, they stand for.
2: Is there is their standard?
5: Right. None of that took him down. No. You know, Brian Stelter didn't get in on, on, on reliable sources and say, you know what? This crossed the line. The fact that he helped a cover up of for his brother, that he that he attacked the women accusing him of sexual harassment. None of that was beyond the pale for American journalism, according to these people. It was the sexual harassment he was doing when
2: he was somewhere else. right? so, so the New York Post reported Chris Cuomo was fired over the weekend. And the New York Post reported that CNN fired Chris Cuomo after learning that he'd been accused of sexual misconduct by a woman who formerly worked with him at ABC... And that was like 2005, 2006 when he did the morning show there. Right. <clears throat> and I don't want to minimize that. My
5: point is is that if you're a journalist and your job is to, to maintain the ethics of journalism, you would think a guy who's violated all the ethics of journalism would be a reason to fire him.
2: And it, But it also... Look, it's a perfect parallel with his brother. Right. Right. It's a perfect parallel with his brother. Yeah. The fact that,
5: that, that, that him taking COVID-positive patients in nursing homes isn't the reason that he lost his job as governor. Yeah,
1: killing thousands and thousands
2: Thousands of, of
5: people. That wasn't the reason. No, there's minute. an
2: alleged sexual misconduct. I think in Cuomo, it's been reported that it's like he grabbed somebody's butt. And, and, and his brother, the governor, is like he... And know, they should be
5: fired for those things. Yes. But they
2: should also be fired for not doing their fucking jobs.
5: It's, it's ultimately just <laughs> right?
2: incredible to me that in the liberal world, in the progressive world, we now live in a standpoint where you actually cannot be fired for anything less than sexual harassment. Right. You cannot. If you kill people, like... That's okay. Uh, it, Violate like, every ethics of your job as a
5: journalist. That's Okay.
2: Yeah, right. It, it, the standard by which you profess is the harbinger of of what ethics is in your job. If you cannot uphold that, eh, eh, it's his brother. It whatever. tells you how little
6: they actually think of their own professions. Well, can I ask you a question here? Yeah. CNN has put out a press release in the last week or so saying that they're going to focus on news. Michael, what you're suggesting is... Um, They must not believe they've been focusing on news up to this point. (laughs) Do you think that Cuomo is focused on hard news? (laughs) Hard to tell
2: with that big fucking Q-tip he had stuck up his nose. I mean, honestly, I can't believe that all of this has taken as long as it
5: has. I'm not surprised in the the slightest. I mean, you you got Brian Stelter. Perfect example, Brian Stelter. This is the sort of guy, you know, every sort of like little boomlet news story of the Trump era would say, you know, Republicans are silent on Trump saying X. Republicans refuse to comment on Trump saying Y. This guy ignored all of the Cuomo scandal until the minute that Chris Cuomo was fired. And then he goes on and he tweets about how it's crossed happening. crossed the line. Yeah, I crossed the line. Yeah. It didn't cross the line the entire time it was true, and everybody knew it for months. But the second that it's happened and he's fired, now he's free to talk about Still, it. You don't Dorado think— loses job, too. I'm just
2: telling—I'm just saying. He's not he's a
5: media not, reporter, dude. He works not. for a super PAC. You don't think— That's he... what he does for a living. It's a, it's a
6: protection he's, he's, racket he's, for CNN. He's
1: a CNN PR employee. He is not in any way a media
6: reporter. At all at all. You guys don't think Stelters on the up and up? <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. just
5: fucking path- it's just fucking pathetic. So
2: apparently Cuomo also got fired from Sirius. Listen, I mean uh, we can't keep dealing with two tiers of media and expect conservatives to have any sort of anything but resentment towards these people. That's yeah, right. these people act like there's a you know, there's no reason that
5: americans distrust journalism this is why yeah because chris cuomo could pretend like he was in quarantine with covid remember that oh yeah and then there's photo evidence of him outside and and he emerges on national television from his his basement quarantine a complete lie that
2: was a lie or how about the 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 video that emerged and i love this juxtaposition juxtaposition The video that emerged of him getting in an argument with this guy to like have some kind of a reception or something. Yeah, throwing his chest out. And he's like bumping into him and asking him to fight and whatever. And I always juxtapose that to Tucker Carlson in the store where the man is trying to start a fight with them. And, he, and he's basically just explaining what he's doing Yeah, there diffusing the situation. And, try, and just, you know, to try like, to...
5: Like a human being.
2: Yeah, right. Just trying to walk away. One of those two stories was a national media story for a week. Yeah, it was the Tucker Carlson. It was the Tucker <laughs> Carlson. It was not Chris Cuomo literally trying to body some guy who right. had a problem with his coverage. Yeah. I think he called him Fredo or something like that. Yeah. Which is why he got upset.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: right? Which is a great nickname. It is. It I is mean, great. and he is the Fredo.
1: Let's yeah. be serious.
2: He is the Fredo. But you guys, all right, let's transition out of this because I think we've got some important stuff. Like, for example, this dude who burned down his home because of this snake infestation. Did you see this, Smug?
1: Oh, yeah. Solid move. And it, We'll go with the story, but I just want to say solid move.
2: So the AP reports that a homeowner tries to smoke out the snakes, but he, he burns down his own house. A Maryland home was accidentally burned to the ground by an owner who was trying to get rid of a snake infestation, the official said. The homeowner in Poolsville, a town about 25 miles outside of D.C., was attempting to smoke and purge the snakes from his house, according to Montgomery County Fire Department. He actually just burned his
1: house straight down. Oh, no. I so, mean, that's that's a solid approach. You know, I'm I'm one of the people who, who, who believe in... You shouldn't take any kind of like a half measure. Just get the job done, you know? Well, I think that's... I Listen, we've talked about this before.
2: If you live in a home, and I don't care if it's snakes or spiders, honestly, mm-hmm. but it's so overrun with these things that you can't get them out. You get like pest control, nothing you can do. They're just all over the place.
1: Yeah, this isn't like ants. No. I mean, this isn't like
2: ants. These are snakes. No. You burn the you burn the thing down. Got
1: them. You got burn him.
2: it down. You gotta do it.
5: I just... Okay. Okay.
2: I think the homeowner made the right move. No,
5: I think it was a little bit of an overreaction. I got to look at the Wapo coverage of this, and it says the remains of only (laughs) one snake; its skin was found in the ashes. One snake was found alive. Firefighters apprehended this snake and released it in the nearby woods. Seems
1: like
2: an overreaction. Wait, you think you you, do? So your view is that this man only had two snakes in his home?
1: No, I I I think I think he. Them well, it so says the, re-
2: the rest of the snakes were dis- were destroyed,
5: hidden by the debris, or or slithered away. Okay, fine. Well, fine. Me, say, it's a victory. It's a victory.
1: Yeah, it's a victory. Smug. They're either dead or gone. So that's what he wanted, and that's what he got.
2: Yeah, I that's think. Got. I think
5: there's other mitigation strategies.
1: Hold on. Let
2: me just ask you: If you tonight find, let's say, seventy five snakes, okay, in the home of your wife and child, uh huh, what do you do? Well. You burn that fucker down. No, I'm.
5: I I am. I am about to go on the most epic run to Home Depot you've ever seen. As a grill dad, I'm not going to burn down my home.
1: You can't fight seventy five snakes. Especially tongs. You can't. What are you going to get from Home
5: Depot? Uh, Poison.
1: You're going to. You're going to try to poison snakes. You think snakes are eating poison? Yeah. What kind of like snake bait?
2: You're gonna have snakes hanging off your ear lobes by the end of this. No, I'm, I'm getting. This is voicing. your approach. Do you know how long it takes. I'm getting
5: birdshot. Here's I'm your, getting birdshot. I'm gonna get my 12 gauge. I'm going to the right, basement. I'm gonna, I'm gonna shoot fight my way, shot way out.
2: Shotguns off in your house. In my if it's in the basement, yeah. Okay, well that is an approach.
1: You got a nice basement, dude. I wouldn't shoot the place up, but
2: <laughs> burn it down. Burn it down. <laughs> I think you gotta burn it down. I think this man's right. I feel like he's been unfairly.
1: I think
5: burning it down is a retreat.
1: You gotta make it look like an accident.
5: You gotta fight to the last man. (laughs) You gotta fight to the last man. You gotta get birdshot in a twelve gauge, and you gotta you gotta fight them. This is your home. You're gonna give it up to the snakes.
6: To the snakes? Yeah, get the hell out of there. That's
1: you gotta make it look like an accident. Did you see? You you have insurance.
6: Rebuild it. Have you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? I have. That was only fifty snakes. The idea wow. that's been put in front of you is 75. You're yeah. not going to protect your son and your wife? You burn it down. I'm, no, not, I'm not saying they're still going to be in the house. They can leave the
2: house. I think you burn the house
1: down. You got oh Yeah, God. it's got to go, dude. Maybe. Make it look like a mistake. Get the insurance to cover. it. <laughs> You hook
2: something up to the like the electrical equipment. I mean, you don't
1: want to buy a house in this market. You know how much more you're going to be paying? It's going yeah. to be a bidding war.
2: Just burn it down and rebuild. Burn it down and rebuild.
1: That's, that's exactly <laughs> right. So
2: um, we can't get enough of Kamala Harris on this program. Yes. And if you notice, everyone is trying to figure out what's going on over there. Last week, they basically, I don't know what happened. Most of the staff quit, Yeah. if you noticed. And so now, like the Post, New York Post, and, and several others are doing like a little interview segment with people and trying to figure out what's going on. Right. Right. They say Vice President Kamala Harris is described as a bully in a new report that brands her as a common denominator behind recent exodus of high level staffers. Harris's allegedly soul destroying, quote unquote, <laughs> management style was revealed to staffers by the Washington Post just days after the spokesperson and longtime aide Simone. Sanders announced her departure.
5: Soul destroying. Soul These destroying. These people are so soft.
1: Also, do you know how much it would suck to have a job where you have to put up with Kamala Harris' shit? No, Look, I get I get
5: it. I, I I get that 100%. What I'm saying is to say that it's soul destroying is like the softest. You
1: know, I think it's by choice. You're letting your soul be like if, if I were in a room and Kamala Harris is like bitching at me, I, I, I walk out. Simple as that. But if you have to like put up with it for your job, of course that's going to destroy your Something soul. tells no me th- I'd have no self-respect if I put up with Kamala Harris's shit.
2: Something tells me Kamala Harris doesn't hire a lot of people like you.
1: I, I mean, that's the thing. It's I there. You, I you know what? I agree with you, Duncan. It's it's because they're soft. Like she would not be able to deal with people who are like, "Why am I listening to this idiot?" <laughs> like this lady has to hire kids to act like they're interested in what she has to say about space. Like she hires <laughs> actors. Yeah it's
2: incredible this quote there's a couple of great uh quotes one got this by this guy gil duran who's a former harris aide, who said uh, who are the next uh talented people you're going to bring in and burn through and then have them pretend like they're retiring for positive reasons?" <laughs> that's
5: incredible
2: that's incredible i mean we awesome so, but
5: we i mean none of this should be, really be a surprise because i mean you remember when she was running for president yeah there was that big story about the dysfunction within her presidential campaign and the fact that like basically like her sister was really running the show
1: which is a nightmare. Yeah.
5: Right? Like it, folks, if you're working on a campaign and the sister
1: of the candidate is the one who's actually running the show, if it's it's one thing if it's like, you know, the candidate's spouse. It's just like, okay, you know, that that's pretty common and and they have a very huge interest in making sure that, you know, their spouse is protected. But if it's like the candidate's sister is now up in here
2: They don't want
5: that. to run a professional operation. It's my point.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. No, but it, but also, I mean, it goes to show that this is this is the issue behind the selection process itself. Yeah. Right. Normally, you don't get this in something that's operating in the White house because these are professional people who've sort of worked their way through the political world. They right. Assembled people who are loyal to them. They understand the ins and outs, the ups and downs, more particularly of politics, and they just kind of fire through it. This lady was hired. Basically because of her demographics. She doesn't have any real skills to to associate with. Just recall, President Biden said before he was nominated that he was going to pick a woman as the VP. A woman of color. No, but then then three months later, he amended that to say a woman of color. Right? Yeah. There was a grand total of one woman of color in the in Democratic field. And, and right.
1: coincidentally, the only one was the one that called him a racist. Right. Live on stage at a debate.
2: Right. Right? So he's boxed into this selection of this person who's wholly unqualified, who we now know can't keep staff around.
1: And was so popular within the party that she had to drop out before even I was. <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. So here she is. It's just <laughs> incredible. If you think about it, I mean she's a senator from
5: California. Yeah. And she had to drop out before Iowa. Yeah. Like think of how bad of a politician you have to be in Democratic politics to not be able to get to
6: Iowa. Well we and, now know. Right. I, I Iowa was the problem. It wasn't her. It was Iowa. <laughs> oh, yeah. Iowa Iowa was the problem. Also,
1: there's like uh we can go into it later, but there's like an institutional decay in the Democratic Party of California where they it's so blue. And they never have to put up with any opposition that they've atrophied. Like, and then you end well, up with people it's, like Kamala it, Harris being a senator. It's like what
5: point. Bane what Bane says in Batman. Sorry, I got to be a nerd for one Jesus. second. But what Bane says is that victory defeated you. Nice. That's the reality of California politics. That is, that is. The Democrats in California are incredibly soft because they don't actually have to fight and win.
2: It's a good point. I wish you wouldn't have gone comic books to make it. No. it. Okay. Well, that. you know. It is what it is. But, but you
6: know what? Mayor Pete is running against her every single day of his life. It's
1: so amazing.
6: It's it's just incredible. He's
1: doing, I'll, I'll say I'll say his, you know, advisors or whoever are doing a great job. Just
6: undercutting. Letting,
1: yeah, yeah, undercutting <laughs> Kamala, turning him into the front runner well, When well, the guy well, is well, like well, the Secretary of Treasury you, you know what? on some days.
5: But you know what? You know what, Smug? And we've said this on the Variety program for about six months.
1: Uh, or transportation, by mistake, yeah. Uh,
5: I think the Biden people are aiding that process. 100 percent, one hundred percent, hundred percent.
6: No yeah, question I mean, they don't. They, they, the you're, Biden you're people saying hate the, the Kamala people. The Kamala yes. people hate Wait, the Biden what? people. What? <laughs> Biden doesn't like Kamala. Yeah. <laughs>
3: turns out, turns, turns out,
6: people
1: don't like them. <laughs> turns out, calling like a a dude a racist live on stage doesn't endear you to They want, they want Mayor Pete. Do you guys want? Do you guys
2: want the the pushback? Yeah, the pushback from Kamala. Yes. Uh, So there's this douche. I don't know how else to explain. David Gins, this guy? This guy, David Gins, nobody's ever heard of. He says, hi, my name is... He tweets this out. (laughs) Hi, my name is David Gins. I work for Vice President Harris on behalf of the American people as a Deputy Director of Operations and absolutely love my job. Just
6: thought some of you should know.
1: (laughs) The best and it's a picture of him That's dude that's a hot
6: that's like a hostage tape. It is. Yeah, please describe, like, Just you got to describe the picture.
2: So it's a picture of him stand like at his si- desk sitting like he's got a broom handle up his ass. <laughs> <laughs> straight, Straight like he couldn't straight. be couldn't be any more attentive at his desk looking at this computer screen just I, apparently this is to to are we denoting that he is uh, an attentive worker? I don't know what we're trying to do, but he's in an office, evidently, of Kamali Harris, and he's very happy. About and and when it. I no s- smile on his face the What they, what they photo- don't show, what they don't show,
5: slightly off off photo here, is three snipers with <laughs> with lasers on his face. <laughs> <laughs> if he doesn't read from the script. Send the
4: tweet, David.
5: All he has to do is hold up a copy of today's newspaper and I'll believe it. <laughs>
4: Send the tweet, David. Send the
5: tweet and you will feel no, no pain. pain.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that was a nice brave heart. Nice brave heart. I love it. All right. So uh in other news and Swag, this is right up your alley. Yeah, yeah. You're a big space guy. You like this stuff. Big space guy. Chooses space homer over almost everything else other than dinos um a potentially hazardous asteroid worth 5 billion dollars will pass over the earth this week nasa says
1: i mean so so the way this works is uh you know there are these rare earth minerals etc that are uh in asteroids you know zooming around folks who who may have seen that film uh what was it called Armageddon that Bruce yeah yes. was, oh, yeah seven? yeah okay, absolute yeah, classic great, great pool if you haven't seen it you have to see it uh May remember that you know asteroids have a lot of stuff going on. They had to send you know an oil rig team up there. Yeah, they got stuff in it. there. Yeah, so so I mean, we need to really find a way to get this job done. I
2: like, got well, a lot of questions though. If we know that it's worth five billion, if we put a number on it, yeah. how do we? How can't we just blow it up, or just <coughs> or bring the stuff? Like, do you just measure it from afar? I mean, I that's don't the know, thing. This is work? like
1: uh, we we got to find. They can get imagery of, like, what's there. They can use various instruments to try and get an idea, like spectrometers stuff of, of what the composition of the thing is. But the, the this is a major problem right now. And, and a lot of this has to do with the Dems not focusing on American exceptionalism and believing in how great our country is and the possibilities of our country. There we go. They no longer look up at the sky for America. They look down and, and they say this is an evil country that, you know, everyone— must suffer and, and face punishment for our sins, whereas Smug, we have at,
2: a we have a gender strategy. Is exactly, that <laughs> not? that's what
1: I'm talking about. It's like China, Russia. They've got their hypersonic mm-hmm. missiles. We've got a gender strategy. We stop, you know, innovating. We stop focusing on all the possibilities. It was it was it was uh, 1969 when Nixon put a man on the moon, right? Yeah. 50 years.
6: Yeah. I love that you got it, Nixon. Why are we it's not
1: Nixon's name's on the moon? It's it on is. that plaque.
6: That's right. I guess
5: what I'm wondering is like why. Why are billionaires going to fake space when they could instead
0: capture take, these things? Right.
5: Take take a team to this asteroid, drill in it, get us the cobalt so we don't have to rely on China for rare, rare earth. That's yeah. it. And you know
1: what? I give credit to That's Elon what I'm talking about because I feel like, you know, the government bureaucracy is also part of the problem here is Part of the reason we don't have a hypersonic missile is because our military will continue, our our government will continue pumping money into failed programs that are not delivering. Like the companies that are working on a hypersonic missile program in the U.S. have failed tests again and again and again, while Russia and China have succeeded in them. Meanwhile, you look at Elon, who has built quite literally rocket city in America. Yeah, he he found a town in Texas. He's created God knows how many jobs. He's got a monster rocket. The LART is bigger than, bigger than the Saturn V. But the why, is he, taking down, why is he taking the asteroids? That's what I'm saying. I, I would highly encourage him to do it. I think he should Elon, take the asteroids. Elon, get that. Asteroid. Like, Five bring it down. Bill, bring it you down.
2: Know? <laughs> I mean, that's
1: real stuff. And the funny thing is, <laughs> to Want him, some
2: cobalt? Give me Elon? Some that, give me some of that space moon rocket. That's what I'm talking
1: about. <laughs> I mean, listen, if it's $5 billion, that's no joke. Right. It could pay for the mission. I mean, I would, I would love. For some company in America start doing that. Because how cool would it be if they're like, you know what, I saw Armageddon and now we're gonna do it. Yes. Because it was a good movie. I got a red wave update for you guys.
2: Okay. Wait,
6: wait, before we get to the red wave update, should we do should we do one of the interviews? You wanna?
2: Oh, sure. Let's do it. Let's go to the let's go to the Rush interview.
5: Okay, yeah. So um this interview is with Brett Winterbull, who did ten years as producer of Rush Limbaugh's show. Has his own show. Great guy. Let's get right to it. I want to welcome to the program Brett Winterbull. How are you Brett?
4: I'm great. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it.
5: Yeah, thanks for doing this, man. Um really appreciate it. Look, you've had an incredible career in radio, uh both with your own show and uh you know as a producer for Rush Limbaugh. So right out the gate, I got to ask you, you know, what do you think has changed most in in the industry since you got started uh versus, you know, today?
4: Well, I would say it's probably the uh, little D democratization of the industry, right? Because we now have, I mean, I've got an iPhone here, you've got a phone, you can do an entire broadcast from anywhere in the world. You can get all the content you need. You can do all the bells and whistles. It's it's very much more accessible to anybody who wants to do it. And uh, podcasting is an outgrowth of that video, vlogging, things like that, but You know, I've been in radio since the late 80s. Okay, and I've seen a ton of changes, consolidation, but also it was vitally important to go to a giant studio in a building somewhere in town, uh, be there for a number of hours, prepping your show. If you were doing talk radio, right, you had to cut newspapers up. You didn't have Internet. You didn't have any of that sort of stuff. And you had to have a, a plan of what it is you wanted to talk about. This is now incredible because for as much as people will say like radio is a clunky medium, right? It's an old medium, it's that sort of stuff. it's 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 really no longer radio. It's audio, right? right. It's an audio medium. And so as a consequence of that, um, we we move at the same speed that television moves. It's just that you can't drive a car through town looking at a television unless you've got a driver, or you're breaking the law. <laughs> essentially, um, radio's with you everywhere, and we're the most intimate medium. And uh, you know, it's 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 amazing, and a lot of it does go. I, I would say the bulk of it goes to what Rush was able to do by redefining a medium that was kind of on the ropes when 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 he went uh, when he came in and started doing his show, and then go at national.
5: Yeah, you know, and I I think you really hit on 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 two things that are uh, really important. Number one, um, you know, the, the barriers to entry into this marketplace of radio or entertainment and and news and information are like zero now, right? Anybody right. can do it. You got an iPhone, you got whatever. Um, and of course, legacy media hates that. Yeah, uh, and they hated that about Rush, you know, when mm-hmm. Rush was getting started because you know, he could do whatever he wanted. Um, and I guess I'm curious, you know, in your your time producing that that show, you know, what's the one thing that really sticks out in your mind as the most, you know, innovative thing
4: that that Rush did? Oh, man, uh, there's a ton of them. Um, I'd I go to the core value of what he had for his program, okay? And that was to entertain. Yeah. And w- when you give that answer to people, I'm not talking about people in, in this industry or in the entertainment business. The, the broad spectrum of population out there thinks being an entertainer is undercutting what he was, right? You understand, like, well, that, that, that's not serious. I mean, you think <laughs> about the entertainers. It's like a stand-up comic in a nightclub right. or whatever. No, no. To entertain means to grab your attention Keep your attention. He he used to say this on the show all the time. Grab your attention. Keep your attention so he can he can charge confiscatory advertising rates to the advertisers. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what it is. If it's not interesting, if you're not doing an interesting show, you're not really doing a show. Right. You're doing a a rant, a riff. You're doing something like that. But if you're not entertaining, people aren't going to stick around and watch the show. Well, and, right, right. It right. doesn't it doesn't mean that like you can't have big ideas and thoughts. Right. You have big ideas and thoughts. That's what can be entertaining. But you don't have to sit here and be like, in AD seven twenty-five, <laughs> the constitutional ideas of Denmark were We don't need that. We don't need Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Right. Okay? Well, I mean uh, we, no, and that's
5: what people in DC I think I think misunderstand about the medium yes. of radio. And, right. and politics, right? Is like right. how how does how does your family consume political news and information? Right, like they don't right. want to be read the Federalist Papers. They want to be no. entertained, you right? know, because they got busy lives. And people in D.C. That's just right. never get that. And that's why people fundamentally misunderstood what Rush did. That's uh, absolutely right. Which is, um, you know, one of the things that I love about podcasting is sure. is, is that it's easier for us than it was for Rush, right? Like, because he had like oh. set commercial breaks, right? <laughs> you, know, all this, all, all, you know, the, the, the technology has improved so dramatically. And, and podcasting, we can really be totally free form, right? And creative mm-hmm. and funny. Um, you know, what role do you think that that humor plays
4: in producing radio? Oh, gosh, if you don't have it, it's, it, it's awful. Right. I mean, look, why did Air America fail? <laughs> okay why why have progressives by and large failed in in talk radio and there's a there's a place for them and you know where their places are college campuses and standing outside of public spaces demanding that you sign some weird petition right. uh, to to legalize patchouli or something <laughs> but but the fact of the matter is the reason why talk radio works conservative talk radio works is once upon a time uh the rock and rollers, music business people, the film industry—they were counterculture. Now they're the culture. Right. Uh, conservatives, libertarians, free-thinking people, declined to state. Those are people that are. We're the counterculture now. Right. I mean, we are the counterculture, and so we we lampoon, we make fun. Mort Saul recently died. You know, you you look at some of the greats that were pre- presenters, right? Mort Saul, uh, Carlin. Um, you know the the great paul harvey right mm-hmm. they all had a sense of theatrics entertainment but not beating you over the head until you submitted i mean that's and that's you have that like that's that's the entirety of the msnbc and cnn lineup right now <laughs> right. yelling at you yelling at
5: you right so i mean you you obviously talk to a lot of conservatives libertarians free thinking mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. you know on your on your program i'm curious you know what do you hear most uh, from from listeners and fans and stuff right now?
4: Uh, it, it's kitchen table issues, right? I mean, it's 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 very similar, I think, to what we saw with Newt in 94, 95. OK, uh, people are mad and it's not that they're mad at like the president. They're mad at the circumstances. They, they are mad at the president for decisions he makes. But they're mad about the state of the country because you have an A.B. comparison right now today. We have a a picture of America that does not comport with what America looked like in 2018 or even 2017. And so I think that's what you hear most from my listeners. Now, I, I come at this from a slightly different perspective because I spent, before I came to Charlotte, I spent a large part of my career in Southern California. I was in Los Angeles. I did sports talk for a while. Uh, I did conservative talk. Uh, I've been on Sirius XM. I was in San Diego. So I know what it was like to be stuck behind the blue curtain. Right. And, uh, you know, I was on Newsmax out there as well. And it was like an embarrassment of riches. You know, Gavin Newsom was my governor. My gosh. I mean, please, except for the fact that he's driving the state into the ground. So when you look at the picture and you talk to the folks, you got a lot of, you've got a lot of in-migration into the Carolinas where I am. You've got people coming in from California and the Northeast and the Midwest. We're begging them not to bring their politics with them, (laughs) but it was kind of, but it was kind of freeing to be insurgent like that on the other side of the blue curtain. Cause like, it was like no holds barred.
5: I feel like, you you know, know, it it also just produces better material sometimes. Without a doubt. Back to your point of like lampooning, right. And mocking and, and, and radio being a great medium for that. Like, I feel like we benefit from being in the D.C. area, right? Like, because we we see this stuff
4: every day. (laughs) Unbelievable. I I mean, I I was in D.C. for an event about a month ago. And it's the first time I've ever been in Washington. And I was in Washington in the 80s. It was the first time I was ever, like, fearful on the streets of Washington. And I said to myself, Washington has become New York, has become Los Angeles, the great liberal cities, quote, unquote. Have, have just fallen into a condition that none of us would have ever expected to see.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, and, and, and Corona made it worse, right? Absolutely. And it's just, sort well, of, do you mean
4: the smash and grab robberies that aren't really happening, <laughs> right? like AOC says? Yeah, AOC says it's not real. Data doesn't back it up. <laughs> <laughs> i mean right i mean look at what we're doing here right look at what we're doing here you you have conservatives who are being active and trying to fix the country and you have you know what you have on the other side larpers right these are live action role players that run around and and, and pretend to do stuff and then, you know it's 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 pathetic
5: well yeah and i mean it's they want to deny reality and they want you oh, yeah. to not believe your lying eyes and mm-hmm. you know i feel like for common sense people even if they aren't don't consider themselves Republicans or conservatives. I mean, they're right. starting to wake up to that, and I, I I think you know one of the reasons why they are, you know, flocking to programs like ours or yours is because mm-hmm. we're not afraid to tell people the truth that they see every day, and the legacy right. media refuses to do that, and right. and so I guess what I'm wondering is like, in talking to these people, you know. What do you see as sort of the future of the conservative movement as it relates to like, you know, um, does Donald Trump run for president again? You know, like what is the coalition of voters that
4: that wins back the White House? Okay, so I'll I'll unpack it this way in a couple of different pieces. Number one, um, the crazy thing about the conservative movement is it is there's so many strains of conservatism, right? Um, we're not monochromatic, as Rush used to say. This is not—we're not the monochrome coalition like the Democrats are. Um, so we're going to have to address rude issues, important issues. Now, I don't. Please take this as I intend this. I don't want to come off as sort of a Forrest Gump of terrible places to have been in positions <laughs> in, but but like I'm a guy. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. I went to college in Boston. Worked in New York City. Was in New York for 9/11 went out to Los Angeles, saw. So I've seen carnage and mismanagement on an epic level. Like I was in New York before Rudy came in. And then I was in California and and all these different places. But the reason I bring this up is that the issues are the same every place. Right. Like growing up in El Paso, right across from Juarez, a place that Joe Biden has never been, by the way, has never visited. um, And Kamala Harris only flew over. Um, Being in that place and seeing the issues, the issues are the same every place you go. Right. So people want uh, jobs and they want money in their pocket. They don't want criminals running the streets. They don't want an open border. Right. And you know who, who really doesn't want an open border? People that live in under underserved communities. Right. right. People that live in rough neighborhoods. They don't want the open border because they know where people are going to flock to go and shut up a set up shop. You know, I, I understand all that. I'm married to a teacher. I understand the critical race theory stuff that goes on. Out there, but what is all this? What does this all boil down to? What it boils down to is I think the average person wants to be left alone. Right. Not not we we're in the pandemic and we were all siloed. But I'm, I'm talking about I don't want to hear about the Green New Deal. I don't want Greta Thunberg lecturing me about anything. All right. She's never had a job. And whatever job she got, she got because she how dared you herself to the top. And, you know, AOC and these folks that get on television and tell you how you've got to live your life. It's terrible. It is terrible to listen to them. So I think conservatives, first of all, want to be left alone. I think they want to have a a strong country that's got opportunity for our kids. Uh, I think they've got all those things that people have wanted throughout the generations. The malaise of the 70s was remedied by Reagan. You know, Bill Clinton created a situation where we weren't safe anymore on the world stage. And here comes George W. Bush. George W. Bush, you know, had had some of his challenges. Barack Obama was set at the right time to take advantage of economic catastrophe wrought by government with the mortgage meltdown. Right. And then Donald Trump is the ultimate rebuttal to all of this. And so I think people want the same stuff no matter where they are. They want their kids to do well, good schools safe streets and be able to keep their money and really be left alone. Right. I mean, so
5: I guess, you know, what you were saying about being left alone, though, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess, how do you reconcile that? You know, because this is what I hear from a lot of, you know, conservatives, especially online conservatives. You mm-hmm. know, how do you reconcile a, a, a ideology that says, leave me alone when your opponents is an ideology that wants to dictate your life from cradle to grave. For sure. And, you know, you know, because it's almost like we're playing with one arm tied behind our backs and it's like, I feel like what people liked about Donald Trump is that he, he was a bully, but he was our bully. And he and Mm -hmm. he and he and he punished, you know, the enemies of of what we were trying to accomplish. And I I guess I say that, you know, because that's what I hear from a lot of people is like, we can't just be the party of of leave us all alone because the other side's never going to leave us alone. And, you know, so how so how how do we fight back against against them? Right.
4: (laughs) What you just saw happen in Virginia is how you fight back. Right. See, we uh, so many of us are like poly purebred tied to the to the train tracks, and, and, and we're please somebody help me, somebody help. No, we have to help ourselves. Yeah. Like the cavalry's not riding, and we are the cal- What was it that Obama said? That it's a famous quote, right? Be the change you seek. Um, uh, we are the people we've been waiting. Remember when he said that? Yeah, the, like, we yeah. are the people we've been waiting for. No, no, <laughs> we are the people you've been waiting for. And you saw it with Trump yeah. with his policies. Okay, you saw it with people who were who were strong minded leaders. And what happens is when you look at the way government works, you've got this entire segment of government that conservatives would never want to have anything to do with school boards by and large. Right. That was always something where you're like, I'm too busy. I I just go to go to school and get a grade. Right now, you realize it's it's a high stakes issue. Right. Uh, the water board, the zoning board, city council, town council, all these things that conservatives are too busy to do. Right. Because they're working and they've got businesses. We have to get into those fights.
5: Right. We've now woken up to, to realize we we, to. we've woken up to realize that all of this stuff impacts our lives and we can't right. just go about our daily lives saying, oh, well, you know, somebody else will yeah. handle it. And then you like you, you know, you wake up and you realize there's petty tyrants in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. dictating Mm -hmm. your life.
4: (laughs) You remember, I mean, you remember, look, you you remember how mocked the Tea Party movement was, how mocked Sarah Palin was. Now, you can like personalities or not. Everybody's got different opinions. But when somebody steps up and starts to speak for those people. And I think this is what the miracle of talk radio really was, especially uh, it, not so much in the Clinton years, because during the Clinton years, it was pretty much targeted on on Ru- Rush was the big target there. I mean, you're talking about calling KMOX X from air force one to complain that Rush Limbaugh's on the radio. <laughs> but once you, once you got into Obama talk radio was the great counterweight and What they desperately want is for you and me. And I'm thinking of us as like listeners out there in the landscape. Right. They want us to think we're crazy. Well, I mean, of course, I've got to do what they're telling me to do. Of course, I've got to pay nine dollars for gas. Of course, I've got I mean, I'm obviously crazy. But when you have talk radio and this is what happened with Trump and this is what happened with Rush, they start talking and they start saying things and you start saying. I think that I've believed that for a long time, right? This guy speaking my language. They're not mind numb robots. You're, you're, you are communing, you're communicating, but you're in communion. Little C, not, no, no disrespect. Uh, you're in communion with each other on those issues. Right. And this is why they want to kill. This is why Gigi Sohn wants to come in and kill talk radio at right. the FCC. Well, and, 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 because
5: they know. Right. And, and, and we were talking about it earlier, but like, You know, back then it was it was rush and there were other options, obviously, too. But now it's like there's a thousand options and we've disintermediated politics Mm -hmm. and media in in, in a way that legacy media hates. Like now you don't have to go through the filter of MSNBC or CNN to get your your message out. A a politician can come on your show and say, no, see, they're wrong. This is what I believe.
0: (laughs) You know, they don't have to beg.
5: They don't have to beg beg some booker in New York to, to get a chance to say what they want to say. You it's know, true. and
4: I so I, the future right. is bright, <laughs> very bright. I mean, it is really very bright. And that's a fact.
5: So um, I don't know if you saw this. I, I'm, I'm sort of just throwing this at you. Uh, the Dukes Mayo Bowl. Have, have you heard about this? Oh, yeah. OK, so North Carolina versus South Carolina. You're a Carolinas guy. Yeah. Uh, so the the CEO of of Dukes Mayo um, said that if the winning coach of the Dukes Mayo bowl, uh, is willing to get dumped with Dukes Mayo. They'll donate $10,000 in scholarship to that school. If that's you, if you're the coach, do you allow that?
4: A (laughs) hundred percent. First of all, Dukes Mayo is delicious. Yes, it is. Yes. I mean, I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of Hellman's and miracle whip and then I came here and I had Dukes and I'm like, this is really good stuff. Um, but if I'm the coach, of course I'm going to do that because there's nothing. There's nothing but good from that. Right. That's funny. Now I'm trying to think. Beamer, and
5: uh,
4: uh, oh, Mac and Mac Brown.
5: Yeah, macking. Uh, you think he's not doing it?
4: I think. I think. I think Beamer's a lot more likely to do it than Mac Brown. Yeah, but maybe not because he's older and he's you know he's kind of in, in a different place. So maybe he'd be comfortable doing that. Um, but I think it's cool. Uh, I, I'm all in on that. <laughs> <laughs> so,
5: so we, we always end, uh, interviews here on the variety program with three questions. Sure. The first one is, uh, your mat, your last meal on, on earth. What would it be?
4: It would be the cattleman's steakhouse in Fabin's, Texas, which Ooh. I think is the best steak in America.
5: Wow. And, uh, what, what cut? We're going porterhouse, man. Going I'm, with, I'm gonna
4: go with the, I'm gonna whatever the, like the 58 ounce one is because it's my last meal. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm stuffing in an overload.
5: There. Right, you're not counting calories here. <laughs>
4: I'm not. I'm not getting. I'm not getting the fillet. I'm gonna get something heavy duty. Uh, it's gonna really you know make make me happy.
5: Any any sides there?
4: Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go kind of traditionally. You I'll know, bake potatoes, okay. uh, amazing ranch beans, the bread. Like you could go there and actually eat the bread. You could bring the Duke's Mayo there. and there you cover go. the bread and it's still delicious. <laughs>
5: that's great so uh you know if you weren't in radio uh what would you be doing with your life
4: i i wanted to be a lawyer yeah right i wanted to be a lawyer and my mom told me not to like it may be it may be the first time a mom ever told their kid to go into radio and don't go be a lawyer but my mom said don't be a lawyer nobody's ever happy when where they see a lawyer coming, but they like talk show hosts. Well, you know, I, I, so, I,
5: I kind of had the same instinct, you know, when I was growing <laughs> up and then I, I I quickly realized what I actually really liked was just arguing more. Yes. yes.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I did debate in high school and college and all that stuff. And you're right. I like going back and forth and right. I don't want to have a judge telling me to stop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so I would have been, I would have been a lawyer. Yeah. Like maybe a TV lawyer.
5: There you go. Uh, and then the final question, and this one's important to listeners of the variety program: What motivates you more—the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat? And to explain that a little bit, you know, agony of defeats like your Michael Jordan, you yeah. know, like he's motivated by the fear yeah. that someone might actually beat him.
4: Yeah, and like I, it's,
5: and, and thrill of victory is more like you're optimist.
4: No, I I. I I believe it can get entirely much weirder than it is right now, but personally, privately, whatever. So I I'm, I'm motivated by the, by the agony of defeat. Uh, I I'm somebody who says at any point, this great ride could end and I want to do the best show I can do. I want to be the best dad I can be all that sort of stuff. So definitely not, not crashing. Now I'm not afraid of failing. Yeah. I'm not afraid of failing per se, but, um, I, I, that's what, that's what keeps me. That's what keeps the jet going for sure though. Nice. No, I think
5: that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, Brett, I really appreciate it. I was afraid
4: I was gonna fail with that one.
5: <laughs> no, you did a great job. And and you're right, you know, I mean, agony and defeat is a great motivator, but you can't let the fear of failure right. prevent you from succeeding.
4: That's right.
5: Yeah. Brett, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it.
4: My pleasure. It was it was a privilege a privilege being on the ruthless show and uh reach out anytime, man. I had a blast.
5: Awesome. Take care.
4: Great stuff, Duncan. He's
5: great, man. I mean, I I think, um, you know, what he hit on in that interview, and I think shows like Ruthless are proof of, is that the future is like super bright for conservative radio, conservative news, because we can – there's a disintermediation now between, you know, the voter, the listener – the American citizen and news. Like you don't have to go through legacy media and say, oh, oh, please, Booker, put me on so I can tell you what I think. And, you know, maybe you'll give me the 30 seconds that allows me to tell the truth while you lie, you know, the, the other half an hour. You know, now we have a process where like anybody can start a podcast like we did and or anyone can have a show like him and like speak directly into the American people. I think it's great.
2: I love it, and I love the emphasis on humor and the just having a good time with it too.
1: Well, you know, you know what that makes me think of, and Mm -hmm. what I actually before we get to to the Red Wave update, that reminds me of uh, this article that was in Axios, and that of all people, the potato Stelter brought up, uh, decrying that oh no, conservatives are starting their own publications, their own apps, and this is a, a terrifying development. It's unbelievable. So, like, for years, for years, when when conservatives would say, I mean, I think the Hunter Biden laptop situation on Twitter is prime for this, where it, you know, it's only after people were kicked off Twitter, locked up for, for posting a story that the New York Post put out, even the New York Post's account was locked up, which now, of course, after the election, we find out was actually completely true. It's only after the fact. That we find out it's true when this is election interference from like mainstream publications. You saw right. journalists being like, "Oh no, this should not be allowed to get out." Well, and beyond just
5: like you know suppressing a news article on Twitter, what we saw in that moment wasn't wasn't just the suppression of news; it was the deep platforming, correct, of conservative thought from the internet, right? <clears throat> and what you see here and what i think is so important is that like we don't have to be relying on infrastructure on the internet of people who hate us. Yeah exactly. Right? Like and, and that there there is a benefit for conservatives to diversify. Yes. And say, you know what? I I don't have to have, you know, my website on a hosting platform that
1: hates us. That's right. Right? Like a- a- the framing of this Axios article was insane. It says, quote, Dude, these, are the, these are the same people who who, who look at, you know,
5: uh, you know, Ben Shapiro's number one on Facebook and say, you know what? That's the, the death of democracy. Yes.
1: Like these these people are are the tyrants of the 21st century. It says, quote, conservatives are aggressively building their own apps, phones, yep. cryptocurrencies and publishing houses in an attempt to circumvent what they see as an increasingly what liberal. Yes, what they see yeah. as. What oh, they see oh, yeah. as. Yeah. yeah. Not reality. What no, they see, what as. they see as, it's and not, it's very—it's perp- not the banning of all <clears throat> of these
2: institutions from the platforms that's the right. problem. It's a, what they see as the problem. Right? It's these like, people think
5: they are defending democracy. Oh, it's incredible. They're, these people who want us to silence us from the internet and stop conservatives from having a voice—they think they are defending democracy. It's completely
1: whacked. They are so hell bent. Like this is one of their like prime focuses, is on silencing dissent because right. they know their product is shit. Is shit. Yeah. It's shit. It's, they hate social media I mean, how for that can they reason. Defend Biden? Look at look at what this guy the, has done dude, in over o- a year.
5: The only way that they can defend Joe Biden, and it's back to Dana Milbank's bullshit piece that he wrote. The only way that you can actually win as a Democrat in this environment where you're obviously doing a terrible job, is if you if you close stuff. the aperture. If you close right. the aperture of news and you say There's only three places where you can go and get information. You can go to. And control the content. Right. You can go to NBC. You can go to MSNBC. You can go to CNN. And any news outside of that aperture is illegal. I mean, it's it's violence. It's misinformation. And all these platforms should ban
1: it. I want you to think, you know, all our listeners, think very carefully. What are the main targets that you look at out there? CNN, all of them, they try to push. Number one, they're like uh, Tucker Carlson. Fox News are trying right. to kill democracy. Right. Okay. They it's pretty clear they, they present as like this is to defend democracy. We have to silence this person. Right. Makes well that's why of they sense. came after the variety program. Right. Yeah, same reason they came after us. And then you look uh, uh one of the only social networks pretty much where you can find conservatives on Facebook. Right, that's why the New York Times is always going hard. They're like, "Oh wow, Facebook is killing democracy." Right? Wow, because, letting, because, like, because nobody letting, has, because nobody letting having boomers conversations is, is how democracy ends.
5: Right? Because nobody has to go to newyorktimes.com dot com to get news anymore. Yeah, I know. That's that's,
1: yeah. that's what it comes down to is
5: it's, it's the billionaires who right. own these publications right. right. that are mad want well, the referral traffic to their websites it's, It is a monetary decision, not about truth. It's not about democracy. The same is the same reason why Brian Stelter didn't talk about Chris Cuomo until he already was fired.
1: If these people cared about truth and democracy, just like you said, you would not have CNN anchor who is the brother of a governor right. playing with a Q-tip while seniors are dying in right. droves. You would you would you would not have a situation where an honest honest report that's the truth on Hunter Biden's laptop is banned by Twitter and journalists are calling for it to be silenced when it before an election so people can't see the news. I mean, it's very telling that they are... Shameless they're, hypocrites. They're, they are shameless, shameless hypocrites. hypocrites. And they're horrified at the possibility <laughs> that, you know, for years they're like, well, if you don't like conservatives getting banned from Twitter, build your own platform. Conservatives build a platform and they're like, oh no. Oh, we must deplatform platform it. You have to stop the platform. Yeah,
2: no, I love it. Well, you won't be surprised to find out the Democrats don't understand this either. Um, Oh, no. Yeah. So this is your red wave update. But my favorite part about this and the setup is, remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about how they were talking about how they're just bad messengers? Yeah. So now they've put a finer point on that. (laughs) Susan Wild, a congresswoman from Pennsylvania, said that uh, she wanted to hear less about Donald Trump that she feels like their all of their electoral woes lately have been about Democrats
1: talking about Donald Trump. Remember how much Terry McAuliffe yeah right. would talk about Donald Trump? And yeah. Like they uh, uh he even straight up lied like the day before the election was like Donald Trump showed up here yeah he's I, here
5: he's here he's here it's it's their it's their sugar high right like it's yeah. oh, it's yeah. it's just their empty calorie bullshit that allows them to pretend like they're successful they're so
1: scared of him it's like the boogeyman yeah you know it's like parents would be like oh no you know if, if <laughs> yeah, you don't go accomplished to sleep, right. the boogeyman's we, gonna come we, get you we've
5: accomplished nothing and we're terrible at our jobs but but you have to vote for us because maybe Donald Trump's around the corner he's yeah. under your bed yeah. they have yeah. the, the house yourself. they have
1: the Senate they have the White House. Yeah. And still, they're like, guys. Donald Trump, <laughs> the, the like great, the great threat is like. <laughs> Attacking us from yeah. from
4: Mar a Lago from a resort yeah. in Florida, democracy. Yeah. We control destroyed. literally everything. <laughs> but,
2: the, <laughs> but the ultimate problem of all of this is they've never come to grips with the fact that the, what the thing that people don't like is their shitty policies. Right,
5: right, right. It's not that right? they can't sell it. Right. It's like
2: oh, I, I you know, we we did talk about it wrong, or we talk about Donald Trump too much, and yeah. this, that, and the other thing. Fact is, is that they all suck. Right, right. And no matter how much the mainstream media grabs the trumpet and tries to play their tune it doesn't sell right right there was a very very interesting piece in the hill that talked about the irs data about the trump tax cuts did you guys see this no. yes
1: yes and i i mean i remember when when trump passed that amazing amazing overhaul it, it was huge it benefited this country it benefited so many americans it benefited this economy it was like rocket fuel right and the economy was booming it's it's hard to remember these days you know when 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 we're looking at like a transition to venezuela um so but guy, at the time it was obvious it benefits the middle class well, right. it, was,
2: it, it was all in the facts but they but they all framed it and i remember even pe- reputable journalists would say like a tax cut that largely benefited the wealth yeah it was a windfall right? for the one percent that's right? what they said so this justin haskins guy went through the data and he said income data published by the irs clearly shows that on average all income bra- brackets Benefited substantially from the Republicans' tax reform law, with the biggest beneficiary being the working and middle-class filers, not the top 1%, oh, wow. as many Democrats have argued. Wow. Filers with an adjusted gross income of $15,000 to $50,000 enjoyed an average tax cut of 16 to 26% in 2018, the first year the Republicans had the tax cut into effect.
1: That's a lot.
2: I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. What these guys are talking about is nonsense. This is the data. Filers who earned fifty to
1: hundred thousand. I, I, I just want to reiterate. So fifteen to fifty thousand, they got a sixteen to twenty six percent cut.
2: Yeah. Right. Fifty to a hundred, the tax break was fifteen to seventeen mm-hmm. percent. Hundred to five hundred thousand dollars of gross income sound eleven to thirteen percent,
1: which is almost like half. Of the tax cut that fifteen to fifty thousand.
5: That's the we- that's the weirdest part about this whole thing, right? Is that Republicans passed a tax cut that benefited everybody but maintained a progressive tax system. And they were like, you know what, it only benefits the yeah. one oh. percent.
1: <laughs> so like largest tax cuts right. go to the middle class. I mean, a twenty six percent tax cut is
2: yeah. massive. Huge. And let me just say, like I have I'm, I'm problems with the the tax cut because of what you just said. It just it basically played within the rules, right? It played. It, it was the Democrats set, but it was a pretty simple tax cut. Is my point is like literally just everybody's going. They went out of their way, right? They, they went out of their way to make sure that it wasn't a tax cut for for yes, like even small businesses, right? right? So no income group with AGI of at least five hundred thousand dollars received an average tax cut exceeding nine percent that's like there it is the thing that's wild about all of this in
5: in, in talking about the trump tax cut right is that right now in congress what is being debated is a salt deduction for millionaires and billionaires in blue states a windfall of like 600000000000 600000000000 dollars
1: billion. Isn't it like six, to, fifty or sixty percent of the total cost of the bill is, We'll yeah, go to the 1%. Tax, yeah. It's tax cutting for their billionaire donors. A, and and, if, and if Republicans
2: the try would the to have <laughs> pass. If Republicans have tried to have pass what they're talking about? A, there mean, would be people state of the state AOC oh. would
1: be outside the Treasury crying, <laughs> taking yeah. photos. Right. Throw, yeah.
2: throw a flat tax in. It's That's incredible. what I'm saying. Let's get this thing back. And let's throw a flat tax in. of yeah. Just of rid of everything else. Let's do this right. Flat tax. Let's now. do it right. Let's do it. Let's do it the way.
1: Anyway, uh, we've got another interview. Wait, before the interview, this is, uh, I, I got to get this bit of news in. Okay. Oh, we have late breaking news. It's tragic news. What is it's it? It's sad news. Um, folks, the junkie horse has died. What? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the inevitable. It's. Uh, it, I mean, I feel awful that this happened. It's a tragic day. Medina spirit? Uh, yes, that's so. So uh, the Baffert horse. It says here, uh, is it Medina or Medina? Yeah, no, Medina, Medina, Medina. Medina. You uh, say tomato, I said tomato. So apparently, it, it died this morning. Of, uh, it died the morning of December sixth at Santa Anita of an apparent heart attack while training. And I want to say, I told you so. I told folks, <laughs> this is what's going to happen. Like, it's not you know a pro- We should let the horses. <clears throat> Take what uh, their medical professional feels is right for them, and then we cut this poor horse off from its medicine, how, and it how dies. Do you know, how do you know that? that really, true. something you know, like it, we we cut the horse off, and it croaks. And now we're all the people who are mad at junkie horse. This
2: horse loved cocaine and heroin; it loved it. <laughs> and you, I just monsters. I feel like he's sort
5: of leaning in on all this, and and the reason why I say <laughs> that is I think if 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 you are looking to investigate the death. Of this junkie horse, the number Baff, one pr- Bob Baffert. Took well, hold a horse on, hold on. The
1: substance abuse problem and turn him into a champ, and and people hated the horse. <laughs> I all, all I'm saying, all, <laughs> all
5: I'm saying is, I feel like he's trying to throw us off the scent here. The number one prime suspect for the death of of junkie horse should be comfortably smug.
1: No he, way. He I love that horse. He pushed him too I hard. I think he horse. pushed him in the edge. He pushed him too hard. I knew what the horse was capable of. The <laughs> horse is capable of greatness. And people hated the horse because the horse turned its life around. You know, there's a lot of bad situations. People get substance abuse problems. Well, yes. And then Bob Baffert comes along. He believes in this horse. And the horse starts believing in itself. It starts accomplishing great things. And what happens? Our mainstream media attacks <laughs> this horse.
2: Unbelievable! Takes
1: everything it worked so hard away
2: you know. We now know one of the tools in the toolkit of Comfortably Smug and taking on a horse. Yeah. You just get it as high as shit, <laughs> and you wait it out.
5: Unbelievable. You wait it out.
2: Well, oh. listen, sir, I'm glad you brought that up. That is going to undoubtedly be a big story for years to come. Rest I in peace, junkie I horse. Think, I think Bob Baffert, that is a bad, I think that is a bad omen for bad his look. future no yeah. way. in horse racing. Baffert can't be stopped. <laughs> Junkie or not. Uh, Anyway, let's get to this interview. This is David Drucker. He's written a new book. I want to welcome to the program a good friend, somebody I've known for, gosh, it must be multiple decades now in the making. It feels like we've been around forever anyway. Uh, David Drucker, journalist. He's written a book called In Trump's Shadow. Very interesting read. Wanted to have him. want to talk about it. David, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Listen, pal, uh, you're making moves out there. You know, we've we've worked together for years. When you were on Capitol Hill, sort of covering the ins and outs of politics, there is nobody that's that's more deeply sourced, certainly on the Republican side, than than Drucker. But now you've gotten into the book writing business.
3: Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> it's a business, and apparently <laughs> there is a market for these things, and so I said, why not me? <laughs> um, look, right. by the way, I have to say it's good to be on the program. Yeah, I am um, pleased to see how that the way that you pronounce the word actually became a meme because I noticed this very early on. I thought, oh, this must be a Minnesota thing or I don't know. I've been been in North Dakota to cover Senate races. It's an affectation. I like it. I think it works and you've marketed it well. So you guys have done well. That's nice uh, of you. That's nice
2: of you. Did you ever think we'd be sitting across from each other in a studio while you're selling a book and I'm hosting one of these
3: things? Hell no. <laughs> you know, for people that don't know, but the way Josh and I got to know each other initially, at least as far back as I can remember, because I'm a little bit older than Josh and I, I tend to forget things these days. <laughs> uh, he was a lowly spokesman That's right. uh, for the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And we would sit there on the bench in the middle of the... What, the deliberations for what turned out to become Obamacare. Yeah. And Josh would sit there and and tell me, of course, this was all in background back then. And he'd say, I can't believe they're giving us our issue back. (laughs) Actually multiple issues, plural. Right. Because Republicans had just gotten shellacked to use Barack Obama's term, uh, by Barack Obama himself for the second election in a row. By the way, there's always another election. This is a really good lesson. There's always another election. So, it's two wave elections in a row. Barack Obama comes into office with a near filibuster proof majority in the Senate, not quite, but Arlen Specter fixed that. Later on, may he rest in peace, and they immediately start to focus on healthcare reform, which look if you're a democrat, what have you wanted to do more than anything else in your life, which yeah. is increase the role for the federal government in healthcare, which is something they deeply believed in. And so they had the they had a gigantic majority in the House. And the Republicans are sitting here barely able to m- m- muster a filibuster, and they decide to do health care reform. And maybe because I hadn't been a reporter forever, and I used to have a real job somewhere else, I was like, <laughs> I mean, people like health care reform, this is, this is just not going to work. So <laughs> I felt really smart, and Josh seemed to agree with me. But, he, you know, you would say, they're giving us our issues back. So yeah. that's that's how we got to know each other before you became a, uh, a big B- big effing deal, as, as, <laughs> yeah, as we'll President Joe Biden that. would say. And here you are now interviewing me. Isn't so you, this great? So you can get... Turn re- of the tables. Yes, you can get revenge. I know. Whatever I, know. I did wrong, now's your chance. After
2: years of arguing with Drucker, here's my big shot. Now, to be honest with you, this is I'm excited about this because you've written a book that's a, a different book. Um, all sort of in a genre of Trump books. Most are in the backward-looking variety where they're talking about things that happen in the room, trying to dredge up sort of embarrassing anecdotes and things like that. You took a
3: different approach. I did. And by the way, I like a lot of these books. Jonathan Carl's just written one. Obviously, Woodward and Costa wrote one. Uh, Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns have a a book on all sides coming out that's probably a lot like that. I just decided to do something different, in part, to fill a void in the market. Yeah, (laughs) I thought it might help me sell a book. But, you know, as I was um, covering the, the political landscape during the Trump era, one of the things that caught my eye was that there were a number of Republicans, very ambitious Republicans, preparing for a 2024 campaign long before Trump won or lost. Mm-hmm. And normally in your business, you know, the sort of the polite thing to do is wait. If, you're, if your party controls the White House, you wait for the incumbent to run for re-election. They win, great. They lose, too bad. And then the next day, everybody's out for themselves, and it's yeah. fine and nobody was waiting. Mike Pence wasn't waiting, Nikki Haley wasn't waiting, Tom Cotton wasn't waiting. It's interesting, waiting. right? I mean, that, look, I haven't been around forever, but that certainly was
2: not the case after, like, '04, for example, when G.W. Bush was re-elected. There wasn't a whole lot of eyeing of the Oval Office uh, until
3: 2006 and beyond, basically. Correct. And so, I guess part of it is because things get started sooner. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it was that at the time, eh, to a degree still, but Trump is such an unusual political figure, although I never thought he would willingly leave the stage, which I guess makes me a genius or something. <laughs> um, you know, some people just thought, I don't know, he'll just get sick of this and go back to the hotel business. <laughs> and, you know, people really thought, I better be prepared. <laughs> yeah, right. So there, I saw that, and... Then the book sort of evolved into this idea along with that reporting that that he really has had an impact on the party that's going to last, positive, negative, indifferent, a mixture, and what is that about? So I tried to write what I like to say is a forward-looking Trump book that uses anecdotes and uses reporting about things that happened before the book was published that happened during the Trump presidency and in some cases before then, but to tell a story of the party going forward and who the major players are with an eye toward the different options for the party, whether or not that includes Trump in 2024, because whoever is the nominee will have a huge degree of influence over which direction the party takes. Mm -hmm. My ultimate conclusion is that Donald Trump created a generational break with the reagan era and josh you and i were just talking about this and then i'll I'll shut up but you know for four i'm i'm 50 years old right so going back to the time i was nine years old every four years there was either a reagan on the ballot or somebody promising me they were going to be the next reagan 100 you know and in these competitive primaries they'd all be competing you're i'm the real reagan you're a faux reagan and this (laughs) right well in 2024 it's all going to be about who's the next trump some will be subtle about it some will be overt but he really did create a break in, in, in the eras of the party. And so much of In Trump's Shadow is about what that is and what it looks like and what it means. Yeah, so so,
2: take me through some of this because there's a distinction when people say they want to be like somebody or they're in the mold of somebody. Even in the Reagan era, I mean, look, nobody could replicate Reagan, right? Everybody said they were a Reagan Republican, but there wasn't a damn person who even came close, for a lot of reasons that you can't just attain in politics, right? Charisma and sense of humor and that kind of thing. I think that a lot of that could be applied to Trump too. I mean, you're not going to have another Donald Trump. So my question is, how many of these people are just sort of adopting policy platforms that were sussed out during the Trump administration? Or how many are just trying to to figure out how to navigate maybe that tone similarity?
3: Yeah, so the tone similarity is the biggest part of this but what I will say is the agenda aspect to it on trade on China um, immigration immigration is another Mm -hmm. one and you know Trump ended up a lot more conventionally conservative than even a lot of his supporters thought he might be right so for for Trump's um, Trump's agenda is really an amalgamation of traditional Reagan Republican politics and conservative populism Mm -hmm. but the, the real differences are on trade on China on immigration in terms of how hawkish he is. right? Um, and so you're going to see, and that's the easiest one for Republicans to adopt, right? Because, you know, they may not be able to talk like Trump. They may not want to talk like Trump. <laughs> and there are reasons why you shouldn't want to talk like Trump. Um, although I, I understand why people like it. But the agenda is the easiest one to suss out, yeah. to use your term. And so I think what you will see from almost every Republican in 2024, particularly if Trump doesn't run because then it's a, a bigger field, is all of them basically laying claim to the Trump agenda and promising that. The issue of tone is an even bigger deal, um, and it's harder to do. Mm -hmm. So when I was making my initial calls for the reporting for In Trump Shadow, uh, one of the things I asked just really innocently was, well, you know, what is it going to take to win a primary in 2024? You know, do you have to be what issue is going to be the biggest issue? And whether you were a Republican strategist in the establishment wing, the MAGA wing, somewhere in between, hate Trump, love Trump, everybody started to tell me unprompted, that it's all about attitude and communicating to Republican voters that you are going to fight. Mm -hmm. And everybody used the word fight. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to Donald Trump for this book, I said, what is your biggest impact on the party? You know, what do you think? And of all the things he could have told me, what he said is, I think I taught them how to fight. But there's a really crucial part to this. And I was talking to an ally of the former presidents who I promised I would give anonymity to, Yes, I did the same annoying thing everybody else does, but that's the only reason a lot of people would talk to me. Right. And this person told me that part of the problem Republicans will have is that a lot of them will just think if they do their best rich little impression of Trump, that will get the job done. <laughs> yeah. Right. And what this person said is it has to be authentic mm-hmm. because if it's not authentic, they're going to think you're a fraud and it won't work. So if you're a clown about it or over the top about it, and people think that you're putting on an act, it won't work. Which means, in many ways, if you can find a way to communicate that you're willing to fight, and voters believe that, Republican voters, and it looks nothing like the way Trump does it, it could still work. But if you're missing that component, then all of the issues in the world that you are perfectly right on with the base won't matter to Mm -hmm. them. Right, right. No, I mean, there's no question about it,
2: right? Because you can see just navigating... Some of the former president's endorsements and whatnot. There's no difference from a policy perspective on any of these. No,
3: it's 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 sort of purely rhetorical. It's attitudinal. Right. It's completely like, are you willing to this is why it's funny? And, And look, as a political analyst, I think the president could have been a much more unifying, powerful political figure with a much with with the possibility of having a much more lasting influence on all of our politics, not just Republican politics if he hadn't always behaved the way he did. But the flip side of that is his willingness, almost eagerness to punch down as well as up, you know, to to blast out a statement yeah, no about free a dopey shots. reporter like me. <laughs> you know, he would remember when he would tweet there'd be some random person in the country that he somehow got wind, criticized him? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it was in some union election or something. And it was, all of a sudden, we all knew who this guy, nobody knew who this guy was. <laughs> but that sent a message to republican voters that wow he'll just he'll he'll mess with anybody yeah and that really worked for him politically and it's one of the with the republican party and it's one of the reasons why despite losing control of the house on his watch losing control of the senate on his watch losing control of the white house on his watch they still love the guy right right how much of that do you think comes from his treatment of people in your line of work Oh, so much. People hate us. Right. But I mean, look, liberals don't even like us. It's, they hate us for different reasons. <laughs> you know, it's like, look, I get complaints. I mean, God love them. I get my own relatives call me up and go, the media sucks. <laughs> I'm like, can I still come over for dinner? Yeah, right, right. I, they Look, they think we pick sides. They think, you know, when I got into, this was my second career. So I got into journalism as a full-time profession around the age of 30, 31, something like that. Um... And Republicans back then used to complain to me that the media was biased. Right. And that the media had a warped worldview, but they didn't think we were actively participating against them, yeah. colluding with right. the other side. You talk to most Republicans now, but forget forget politicians. They always complain. They're they never, they're never happy. Um, you talk to Republican voters, and they they just they think we've crossed a line somewhere, and they yeah. can't stand us. But, you know, talk to Democrats, and... They think that we are being even handed towards being tilted towards Republicans. It's wild to me. They believe it. It's and, wild. and at the you know it's and, the
2: easiest job in, in show business is a Democratic press secretary.
3: Um, part, <laughs> yeah. You know, part of this has to do with what they saw from Trump in terms of his post-election behavior on January sixth. Okay, and some Democrats believe that that the Republican Party, as led by Trump, is is an existential threat to democracy, and and reporters need to recognize this and can't continue to cover both sides even-handedly, which they think we do, and because they think we cover both sides even-handedly, they think that we're not taking it's wild all- man. yeah but it's i think wild. it's important
2: it's like unless you're just a stenographer for their point of view you are a, you've got you've shaded to the left yeah i mean <laughs> you know you
3: can't make anybody happy in this business. oh
2: man well so i want to know about you do all the reporting like i said nobody's more deeply sourced on the republican side than you are you get all this stuff together you kind of know where you're going at what point do you make the request to go talk to the man
3: himself Well, the funny thing is, I thought, oh, he talks to everybody for books. He talks to people that hate his guts. Yeah, fact. And he has no idea what I think of him, so that'll be fine. Yeah, right. (laughs) And through official channels, I got nowhere. So I was trying this all throughout 2020, uh, which, granted, there was a pandemic. Granted, he's president of the United States, and he's running for re-election. But I just thought, you know, he talks all the time. Yeah, right. Got nowhere. Then, finally, after... He lost, but obviously wouldn't recognize that he lost. And whenever I say this, people that don't think he lost just get really angry at me. But (laughs) that's just what I think happened. The same way I'm convinced Republicans gained 15 House seats, despite all the prognostications that they were going to lose 15 House seats. Amazing that happened. Yeah, I know. Really weird conspiracy, by the way. (laughs) Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give Republicans 15 House seats and make our majority totally ungovernable. (laughs) Yeah. Totally, And you couldn't have predicted Trump would tank Georgia, which I asked him about. And I'll get to that in a minute. So we're also, we'll let Republicans hang on to the Senate. (laughs) But, but (laughs) we'll put Joe Biden in the white house. You got
2: to do gymnastics to get there. But I know, but look,
3: I want to know what it's like to, to get, to go down there. So it was really, really interesting. So finally, and I I have to thank Jason Miller for this. And I've known Jason for a long time. We've always had a, a good, you know, reporter operative relationship. He became the guy right after the election. I mm-hmm. almost got down there in December. And then he got, Trump all of a sudden got spun up because he was unhappy with the coronavirus aid package and the and oh, yeah. the National Defense Authorization Bill that, yeah. that was going through Congress. So that was, so, okay, fast forward takes me five months in multiple pitches. And at one time, Jason said, listen, I, Jason was trying to help me. But he says, all right, what, what do I tell him? Like, why should he talk to you? Like, what's your book about? I'm like, tell him it's about him. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that should work. (laughs) So to Jason's credit, you know, I was actually getting close to like a hard deadline where I was going to have to like, I don't want to use the, I don't want to loosely say make shit up because I wouldn't have ever made shit up. And these days they'll take me seriously. I was going to have to like, what else do I do with chapter nine? Yeah, right. (laughs) It was about to become an all Don Jr. chapter, which I'm sure would have thrilled him. So, right. So finally, Jason got me my interview. So I, I fly down to Palm Beach. I prep all day. I'm supposed to meet with the former the former president at four in the afternoon. Mark Walker's there begging for an endorsement he never got for North Carolina Senate, and I know this because they put me in like this dining room. So You're watching everybody, and I'm watching. In, they're in the what they call the living room in Mar-a-Lago, yeah, and which is the lobby. But it's very, be- it actually is very beautiful, I have to say. So, like, I think Trump Tower. Once was beautiful and now is tacky, but I think that but Mar a Lago I think is very elegant and restrained and very pretty, Mm -hmm. and I give the former president credit uh, for his design work there. So, um, so while I'm in this dining room, the staff is preparing for that evening service, which is apparently they were about to close down for the season. So it was Wednesday night. It was Cinco de Mayo. It was going to be a buffet. And they're talking all about how, you know, some people are not members, so they'll pay just like at a normal restaurant. <clears throat> the Nolette family is gonna be there. We have special gin for them. <laughs> we don't serve their gin here so we got a special stash. But by the way, he's telling us it's better than our gin. And then he finally says, the manager says, and we have no themed food for this evening's event. <laughs> so there was no Trump Tower, Taco <laughs> Bowl Taco.
2: I, I was going to say, that's an extreme disappointment. I figured the Taco Bowl was just a, a regular
3: deal. Everybody asked me about that. The minute I finished with the interview and I told like some buddies of mine, I stayed for dinner. It was really cool. <laughs> They're like, Taco Bowl? Taco I'm like, Bowl. I'm like, no, but they mentioned it. <laughs> um." So then tr- finally, so the- we're delayed by an hour, hour and a half, whatever. So finally Trump comes into the room, we bump fists, he shows me around, do I need something to drink? By the way, you know, he's like, do you want a Coke, a Diet Coke? And if you remember at the time, because of all the, the, the what turned out to be very bogus information circulating about the Georgia voting law, yeah, you know, and, and Coca-Cola had put out a statement Oh you know, yeah, based in Atlanta, Republicans got, I mean, I know some Republican congressmen that threw Coke out of their office, Yeah, like the actual drink. And said, "We won't drink it anymore." Trump still had it. Trump still had it. <laughs> and I thought I want to put this in the book. My editor's like, "Eh, it's going to be old news by then." <laughs> right, right. So we sit down, and he says to me, "He's like, so what's your book about?" I'm like, "You." <laughs> I'm like, he's like, "Oh, cool, let's go." <laughs> so like I, I, you know, I won't do the I'll bore your audience with have the play by play, but it's in in Trump shadow, the battle for 2024, and the future of the GOP. We start to talk, and I wanted to try and get inside his head and find out why he did what he did and what he thought of the party that he was still presiding over mm-hmm. um, at that moment. And the interesting thing about interviewing Trump is he's very candid and very transparent, but he, he takes massive detours before he answers every question. And so like one of the funny things that happened um, was that I'd started to ask him about speeches he gave or decisions he made. And he would just segue into why he hates people. <laughs> and so because this is a podcast. It's my favorite bit. Um, and he just, it, it would all happen sprinkled throughout the interview. So this, the, some of my favorite things here. Uh, Pat Toomey, Republican senator from Pennsylvania who's retiring, driven out of office because of his stupid, absolutely stupid stance on tariffs. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, who we know is a very prominent Trump critic inside the Republican Party, may run for uh, president in 24 to be like the exception to the rule and to be the one guy not embracing Trump. He's useless. Total weak, stupid rhino. Has he looked in the mirror? That guy has no chance. (laughs) Uh, Mitt Romney, very unpopular in his state right now. Couldn't be elected dog catcher. This is one of my favorites, which is very relevant as we're recording, uh, Josh, on Brian Kemp. I did two rallies for him in Atlanta, and he ended up winning. Unfortunately, <laughs> Richard Burr, retired North Carolina senator, really, you know, it's been a, actually I've really enjoyed covering him over the years. He's a Really interesting member, uh, lightweight, and a stupid person. James, I'm, I'm not done yet. I mean, I wish I was done. I'm not done yet. James, I actually, I wish I was not done. This is funny. James Mattis, the most, the world's most overrated general. I beat ISIS after he was gone. <laughs> Jeff Sessions, no good. Dean Heller, uh, Dean Heller, Republican in Nevada, who's now running for governor, was a two-term senator, lost re-election in 2018. Uh, you guys gained seats that cycle, yeah. but you lost Arizona and Nevada. Yeah, uh, He says, very negative to me. And then at the end, he came and kissed my ass. <laughs> and I'd go out and do rallies for him. They'd have signs, sir, he's not for you. He's not for you. <laughs> uh, and Some then, of my favorite stuff. you know. I mean, that's
2: what we miss. From Twitter, he's like a like a political Lewis Black, right? Like everything just (laughs) angers him. It gets to the point where he's just sort of screaming about
3: any name that you bring up. He reminds me of like kind of like an old Jewish man. He kind of reminds me like my father. (laughs) Say in this regard, (laughs) my father uh, was was self made, like literally self made. Grew up, you know, the first generation American to immigrant parents. Jewish in East LA back when it was working class Jews and working class Hispanics literally he made two fortunes because he lost the first one because a business went south and then he just came back but he used to come home from work and he would just start complaining and bitching about people (laughs) but with the most creative profanity (laughs) like things I won't say even on Ruthless because there might be somebody's kid listening like mine when I put it on the car to take him to school (laughs) It was so creative that I would laugh. I would spend an hour after when well, my father would get home from work, and then my parents were in business together later. So it was like it's a joint discussion where my mother would just say, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. And he'd say, hey, hey, and hey, and this on. one, and that one, and this one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great. So so I want to get, because, because I, I, I don't want to keep you forever, but I want to get two things out of this. All right. You stay for the dinner you get the full mar-a-lago treatment are you like a, are you like a part of the the gang at that point
3: no no so and i'll try and shorten this story at the end of the interview he asked me if i'd like was i flying back to washington and would i like to stay for dinner no i'm not flying back yes i'd like to stay margo will you arrange it that's margo martin she was very very generous with her time uh, when it came to me I said to her, are you sure that I can pay? I know that the manager had discussed with the staff that not everybody was a member, but they pay like a normal restaurant. I have to pay. right?" And she said, yes, it's not a problem. So there's, they take me, they ask me, do I want a table inside? And even though it's humid, it's all get out outside. And I'm from California originally. And hey, humidity, I'm like, no, no, no. I want the patio because the patio is where the action is. Yeah. Patio's full, they take me to the sidebar, I start drinking bourbon like it's water. Because you know, I'm on this high, you know, in your business when you do like oh, you have yeah. a big event, right? So I'm I'm drinking really good bourbon that I assume I'm paying for. And then a table opens up on the patio and it's like a it's a square patio. It's very beautiful. The place is packed because it's the end of the season. And you know, everybody looks like who the hell are you? Who are you? And I'm seated in this corner table. I can see everything. Uh, the table right near me is Don Jr., Kimberly, <laughs> Pam Bondi, and a whole bunch of then other people I didn't recognize at their tent top. So then the I had heard about this. when the Whenever the president walks out for lunch, dinner, or any meal at Mar-a-Lago, and he walks onto the patio, everybody stops what they're doing, stands, and gives him a standing ovation. Come on. It's no joke. Come on. I had heard about this, but I wanted to see it for myself. Oh, you got to see and it. And so, because at this point, I'm like three bourbons in, so I'll... I wasn't looking around as much as I should have. All of a sudden, you're clapping, and people get up. I'm like, oh, it's happening. <laughs> and I get up, and he's hand-in-hand he's hand with Melania, the first lady. They go to Trump. Trump has a cordoned-off table with red stanchions. It's only for Trump. And whoever he's having dinner or lunch with, they sit there with him. And they always eat french fries. You talk to anybody. French fries show up on the table. They showed up for me. I didn't order them. I'm too fat. <laughs> and... Then, like, my night was made. So I did all the stations. Everybody, you know, all of the servers are wearing, you know, either Make America Great Again hats or, like, 45 hats what or a whatever. a scene. It's a total scene. And then at the end, so I'm like, oh, shit. Like, I'm practically inebriated. So <laughs> and I've gotten everything I need. I got notes. It's time to go. So I ask my very uh, – the service there is amazing. Like, they yeah. really take care of you. Hey, I need my check. Yeah, it's on the house. <laughs> no, no, no. We – talked about this get the manager the manager comes over he's like dude i'll get fired <laughs> he's like please leave and i believe him <laughs> please leave so do not make a fuss about this mr trucker <laughs> so i'm like starting to wig out right? in, internally and i'm like i can just imagine you know if he ever actually read the book and decided he didn't like it. i
2: paid for his dinner and everything fake news and i bought him dinner too <laughs>
3: So so I finally resolved. I said, well, here's what I'll do. I'll give a bunch of money to a charity. I'll keep the receipt. I'll write about it in the book. And so there is a Palm Beach charity that my wife was aware of. And so I got back to D.C., gave him $350. There you go. And so so anyway, that was Mar-a-Lago was its own. But by the way, it is really interesting because you see so much Republican action there when he's there. It's not simply, oh, Trump at his private club. I mean, he called it to me the grand central station of Republican politics. He says, I see more Republicans here than when I was president. I totally believe it.
2: Yeah, it's just in and out. Yeah. No question about it. All right, so here's the, here's what I want in conclusion. You come to the end of this. I think you're right about many of the conclusions that you've drawn about fundamentally changing the party, the messaging, all of that kind of thing. You know, I think anybody's guess as to how long that lasts and what this all looks like. Do you believe he's
3: running again in 2024? So everybody asks me this and I always say I think it's 50-50. But because I think it's legitimately 50-50. Mm. When I was talking to him, he, you know, he says to me cuz I asked him at some point to talk about some of the other people that want to run and, and questions related to that. He's like, "Why does everybody think I'm not running?" I'm like, I didn't say that. If do you want to make news. Right. He wasn't prepared to make that kind of news. He talks to a lot of people and leaves them with the impression that he's running. And doing so allows him to maintain a great deal of leverage over the party, over other people that want to run, over many Republican leaders in Washington, over rank-and-file Republicans in Washington. It keeps voters very engaged. It helps him raise an enormous amount of money, which he is doing. Hmm. And I think that there are many days in which he probably is definitely running, and I think Joe Biden looking weak, and I'm talking about polling now. I'm not talking yeah. about anything else. Um encourages him because, yeah, I can win and see they miss me and that sort of thing. But I don't think we're actually going to know until he is in the position where he's ready to pull the trigger. And I think a number of things could happen that could make maybe make him decide he doesn't want to run. It's not because he's going to get tired of doing the rallies. It's not because he's going to get tired of being a famous person. I just think that, you know, if he runs a third time to try and get that second term, he will be going into that older than Joe Biden. And even even though he's a very vigorous old man, um, I think it's still a time still undefeated. Yes, I I still think I just think we don't know. And I don't think that he totally knows. And it's possible he will he will conclude as some Republicans in his orbit suggested to me at least several months ago that the trappings of the ex-presidency are better than the trappings yeah, of the actual presidency. That. But but I to answer your question, I really don't think we know. What I will say is I think more Republicans will run even if he runs than other people think.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that, too. I agree with that, too. Listen, David Drucker, In Trump's Shadow. This is a good book. you got to check this out. It's very interesting and thought-provoking. You get some great in- insights and anecdotes, too. But you also have that forward looking variety, which I think is more than we can say about an awful lot of the other books that have been out. So thank you. I assume we can get it at any online. Get it online. Get it at your books?
3: Correct. Anywhere where you like to buy your books, if it's not there they can order it. It's on Amazon. You click twice and, and it shows up at your door. I did the audio version myself. Oh. So if for some reason you think I have a radio voice that rivals the Assassins, then <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, order the audiobook and listen to it on the way to grandma's for Christmas. I love it. David Drucker, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks a lot.
2: So look, I mean, Drucker's a good friend. He's a good guy. He's well-sourced. It's worth your read. It's a breezy read. Um, it's not like your typical Trump book that just tries to like, you know, sully his tenure and whatnot. It, it tries to project forward and see basically what his presidency means for the future of the Republican Party. And I think it's worth the read.
1: Yeah, too many journos cashed in on Trump's name, pushing these, like, bullshit bucks. Yeah. It's unbelievable.
2: Totally, and I think David David had a much more thoughtful uh, way of approaching it, and so I was happy to talk to him. He's a good friend of the
1: program, and, uh, you know, take a look. So, awesome show, gentlemen. Absolute banger of an episode. Great interviews. Again, rest in peace, Bob Dole. Uh, So, until next time... Minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless.